Let me ask you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. What does it say about us when we despise authority? Obviously, that's not an easy question to answer because there could be multiple reasons why we might despise authority. We may despise our authority because it is a wicked authority. We may despise our authority because they're cramping our style. Maybe we despise them because we don't like their managerial skills. But many times, our hatred of our authority is because we want freedom from restrictions. We want the choice to do whatever we want. And ultimately, that speaks to what we think about our ultimate authority, God, doesn't it? Because if by nature we loved our authority or even tolerated authority, Paul would not have to give us commands to submit to our authority and to obey them like he does in Romans 13, submit to your governing authorities or in Ephesians 6, obey your parents. Or the author of Hebrews, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, submit to your spiritual leaders within the church. See, these authors give these commands because we by nature don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like people being able to make choices or give us uh, instruction and command. And what that tells us is that no matter how wicked or how good our authority is, it's not really about the quality of the leader, primarily, but the attitude of our heart. Will we accept God's appointed leaders to direct us, or will we resist God by resisting the leaders that He has appointed over us? For the previous four centuries, the Lord had been leading Israel by means of a judge. The people were, for the most part, far from God. They did not turn to God except when they were compelled to because of their oppression. And this chapter in 1 Samuel marks a turning point in how God will lead His people. They had been led by a judge. Now they're going to be led by a king. Samuel will still be a character in the ongoing narrative of 1 Samuel, but the focus now shifts away from Samuel in chapters 1-7, through and now to King Saul. We saw the rise of Samuel as God's leader in chapters 1-7. to Now we're going to see the rise of Saul as the people's king in chapters 8-15, through and then we'll see in chapter 16 and following the rise of David as God's king. Here in chapter 8, Israel asks herself a question, who is going to rule over us? Who is going to rule over us? So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. 
For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. To despise God's appointed leader is to despise God. When we despise the authority that God has placed over us, we ultimately despise God. And that's what we see here illustrated for us by Israel. We see four main parts to this passage. First, the rebellious despise God's appointed leader, verses 1-9. through The rebellious despise God's appointed leader. It's been a while since we saw Samuel... In chapter 3, he was just a small boy working in the tabernacle with Eli and he heard the voice of God and responded to the voice of God. Several decades have now passed and we know that because now he has sons of his own, doesn't he? Verse 2. And Samuel, like his predecessor Eli before him, had sons who were wayward. These sons, particularly, the end of verse 2 says, I'm sorry, verse 3 They turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. They used their position to advance themselves rather than to advance God's program. So here we have Samuel in his old age who has appointed his sons as judges over Israel. He did the appointing, not God. And I think this is an important point because do you remember in Judges chapter 8 when the people asked Gideon, Gideon, we love your leadership. And we want your leadership to continue, but you're going to die. So why don't you appoint your sons to be judges over us? Do you remember Gideon's response? He said, I will not rule over you in 8.23, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. You ultimately need to recognize that it's God who is your leader. Don't worry about who your, your your, your, your immediate leader is. Recognize who your ultimate leader is. It's God. And I'm not going to be the one that appoints my sons as judges. Well, after Gideon died, his sons appointed themselves as judges. 
They wanted the authority and the power. And as a result, they created, created a civil war within the people of Israel. Samuel here appoints his sons as judges in verse 1. And when he does, the people have a problem with it. Notice their problem in verse 3. Uh, well, we saw that they did not walk in his ways. They were corrupt men. And so, verse 4, they gather together and come to Samuel and say, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So, these men are corrupt and the people of Israel know that they're corrupt. They were not concerned about the people or about God. They were concerned about their own position and their own personal gain. And so, I think it was actually wrong for Samuel to appoint his sons as judges. And the people knew that. But instead of accepting Samuel's rule who was clearly appointed by God, they rejected Samuel's rule and they rejected God. Their request is to, to appoint them a king. Samuel, you, your sons are not operating like you are. You, you're still capable of ruling over us, so why don't you rule over us? But we reject your sons as rulers. So appoint, appoint somebody who is godly to rule over us. That's not what they said. They didn't ask for somebody who was godly to rule over them. They asked for a king. Notice verse 4, the second part of the verse. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You see, they used the wickedness of Saul's, or, or excuse me, Samuel's sons as an excuse to get out from underneath the rule of God. God, You have been ruling by means of judges for all these ages, or at least these last several centuries, but we don't want that anymore. We want a king like the other nations. We look around and we see the other nations and they all have kings and we want a king. They're like a teenager who feels out of place because he's the only one without the latest clothing style. And they look around to the other nations and feel, I'm the only one that still has this antiquated uh, idea of ruling. That is that God rules over us. And sometimes through judges. It's true that they were unique from other nations in that Israel had no king except for God. But God, see, was doing precisely what He wanted through them. He was ruling them in a way that He wanted. We have seen the nations, in their minds, they had seen the nations more powerful than they. And they saw that all of those powerful nations had one thing in common. They all had a king. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the king. God planned to establish a kingship in Israel he planned a future kingdom led by a king. But notice notice how they ask for it at the end of verse 5. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You see, they don't want to be a special, um, peculiar people of God. They want to be like all the nations. That's the same request they have in verse 20. I think behind their request is an evil desire to turn from God's rule. And the reason I know that is because that's how God describes it later on in the text. What's wrong with desiring this substitute? What's wrong with despising the current authority and asking for a king in his place? Well, we'll answer that when we get to verses 19 and 20. But what we know from verse 6 is that Samuel was displeased with their request and he prayed to God for for a response. And God's response comes in verses 7 through 9. 
And the reason I know that behind Israel's request for a king was godless motives is because God says so here in verses 7 to 9. He tells Samuel that they are actually rejecting him as God, their king. Verse 7, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you as judge, you as deliverer. They're rejecting me of being king over them. They don't want my ruling over them. Their rejection of Samuel was really a rejection of God's authority. Now, we need to be clear that, that, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing inherently wrong with a king. God is our universal and eternal king. He always has been the eternal king. Jesus will reign as the Davidic king in the millennial kingdom and eternity to follow. God planned for a king in Deuteronomy. But the problem for Israel's leader is that they were asking one, uh, that, that in asking for one, their motivation behind the request was improper. The people wanted security from a leader, but they didn't want the accountability of God's leadership. They wanted security without spiritual responsibility. And isn't that what we really want when we despise authority? We want security, freedom, without spiritual accountability. Look at verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done, this is God speaking, since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. You know why they despise you, Samuel, as their judge? Because they're just following after their fathers. They, they don't like my rules. They don't like my leadership. And so God exhorts Samuel in verse 9, gives him three commands. Listen to them, warn them, and inform them. Samuel had already listened to them. Now in verses 10-18, through 18, he will warn and inform them. So, the first part of this chapter is that the rebellious despise God's appointed leader. Secondly, God reveals the high cost of despising His rule over them. God reveals the high cost of despising His rule over them in verses 10-18. to 18. The high cost of the king is that he will take from them. Verses 10 through 17, the word take is used six times in those eight verses to show the king's disposition towards the resources of the people. All the benefits that they expected to receive because they had a king, what did they expect to receive if they had a king? Well, we would be like all the other nations. We'd have some notoriety. We wouldn't look so silly when we go to battle without a king. We would have some military strength. All those things that they were expecting to gain gain by accepting a king, God was saying, you're going to lose a lot of things too. They're going, the things that you enjoy about your king are going to be at your expense. And let me tell you what those expenses are before you finally make your decision about whether you want a king or not. First, their sons would be taken as soldiers, commanders, farmers, and craftsmen. In verses 11 and 12, some would serve in the military. Others would grow produce to feed the military. This operation that they were needing before God was providing for them. Now He's saying, the kings are going to set all this up, this huge mechanism up, and it's going to need to be fed and, and, and it's going to need to have bodies 
Others would make weapons for warfare. Secondly, the daughters would be taken as cooks and bakers in verse 13. If the people are going to be provided for while they're on the battlefield, they needed people who could cook and bake for them. And if that weren't enough, the king would take the best of their fields in verse 14. See, what God is saying is that the king would not be about advancing the desires of the people primarily or advancing the desires of God primarily, but advancing his own personal desires. And we see that sort of thing when we look at Ahab and Naboth in 1 Kings 21. You remember the story? Ahab wanted the vineyard. And Naboth said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sell it. So Ahab went and pouted and his wife came. What's, the, what's wrong, Ahab? You're the king. You can have whatever you want. I'll get you the field. So she set it up to make it all legal, put him in a place where she had two false witnesses come before uh, him at a dinner table and before Naboth and made him look like he was guilty. He was killed and Ahab got the, the property. See, the king, in general, this is generally speaking, we know we have some good kings in Israel, right? But in general, they're going to be about their own desires and so they're going to use their fields, your fields, for their own purposes. Next, we see that the king would also take money to fund his empire in verse 15. Apparently, this is some sort of taxes that he would impose on the people. 10% in this case. This would be for Israel in addition to the tithe that they already would be given to God to help fund the, 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 the tabernacle and the worship of God, the Levites, all that. In addition to that, they would also have to pay the king. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that the king would take the best of the animals and servants. He's not going to just take anything. He's going to take the best of what you have. And notice at the end of verse 17 that he would also take their freedom. It says, And you yourselves will become his servant. You thought you were restricted under my rule? Wait till you have an earthly, pagan, vile, self-serving king over you then you'll really see what it feels like to have your freedom taken from you. So, this status symbol that you want as a nation, we are a nation now with the King. He's saying this status symbol that you want is not free. You will pay for it with your sons, with your daughters, with your land, with your resources, with your freedom. And so there's a high cost to rejecting God's authority and asking for your own humanly in, in, innovated authority. The high cost of having a king will ultimately lead them to regret and helplessness in verse 18. God says, when you ask for this and you receive it, you will cry out one day. Essentially, you will be back to Egypt. Just like you were crying out in the wilderness. Why did you bring us out here to die? We would rather die in Egypt. At least we knew uh, the circumstances there. At least we could have some form of, of normalcy. But here in the wilderness, there are so many variables. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't want to die out here. In a sense, they are getting out from under the authority of God. You see, they want freedom without spiritual accountability. And God says, there will come a day when you are just like you were back in Egypt. 
The verbal phrase cry out was used in Judges to describe the response of the people when they were oppressed by the pagan nations. Do you remember the cycle? People were oppressed. Then they would cry out to God for deliverance. And what was the very next one? God would send a deliverer. But notice the difference here in this passage. They would be oppressed. They would cry out. But notice verse 18. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But, in Judges it was, then the Lord sent a deliverer. But here, the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the difference here is that God would not respond with mercy and deliverance. He says, I'm going to leave you to what you asked for. You wanted freedom and spiritual uh, freedom from spiritual accountability, and I'm going to give it to you. So that even when you are oppressed, you're going to feel it. So, the rebellious despise God's appointed leader. God reveals the high cost of despising His rule. And thirdly, we see that the rebellious ignore the warnings and selflessly demand a leader. Even after all this, I mean, we, someone stood up in front of us and told us this is what's going to happen, we would say, well, we don't want it. We, that king doesn't sound as good anymore. The cost is too high. But in this case, they are blinded. They want it so badly. They want to be, and, and God knows the heart, God, he, they want to be out from underneath God's authority some way. They want somehow to be free under this king. And really, they're going to be more enslaved. And as a result, they ignore the warnings of God and selflessly demand a leader in verses 19 and 20. The people refuse to listen to Samuel, verse 19, despite the clear warnings, and they ask for a king. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Okay, Again, there's nothing inherently evil about asking for the king. The, king the, the evil was in their motivations. They were motivated by peer pressure. All the other nations are doing it. And military insecurity. We can't win these battles on our own. The peer pressure is seen in verse 20 that they may be like the other nations. For Israel, being like the other nations wasn't just a desire, it was a passion. They wanted to be like the pagans. They saw the pagans as in a position of value, of a a, a desirous place. But God wanted them to be distinct. He wanted to show the world the glory of His name through the guidance of His people, through unconventional means. But Israel looked around and they saw the success of the other nations and thought, our life would be better if we had a king. It seems to be working for them. It's got to work for us. So give us a king. So they were motivated by peer pressure. And secondly, they were motivated by military insecurity. We want this king, verse 20, to judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted someone to judge us. They already had someone like that. It was Samuel. He was their judge. He would settle disputes among them. But they wanted a king to do this for them. They also wanted someone who could be a commander-in-chief for them. One who would fight for them in battle. They would give clear direction. Notice the use of we and us in their request. 
Verse 19, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is what their request is all about. They're not concerned about what God wants for them. They're not concerned about God's desire. They're looking for a king to do everything for them. And they're willing to do that even at the expense of what God had laid out for them. They refused Samuel's counsel, ultimately God's counsel, and demanded a king. But what does their military insecurity say about God's leadership up until this point? When Israel had her back to the Red Sea, what king would have been powerful enough to defeat the attacking Egyptians? None but God. When Israel went on the attack at Jericho, And throughout Canaan, what king would have been able to lead a nation small and weak and unprepared to a victory over the powerful Canaanites? None but God. What about during the time of the judges? What about most recently when the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant? What king could go into Philistine territory, destroy their gods, and come away with the Ark after killing 50,000 men? Who had the power to do that? None but God. And yet Israel ignored all of that clear evidence that God was powerful enough to deliver them and to lead them. And instead they said, we want a king to be able to do this for us. Well, God had been doing it all along. You see? Finally, we see in verses 21 to 22, God grants the request of the rebellious. In verses 21 to 22. Now, this isn't always the case, but in this case, God grants the request of the rebellious. After Samuel had heard all the words, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. In what ways are we like Israel? In what ways are we like Israel here in 1 Samuel 8? I think there are at least three. First, We are dissatisfied with God's rule over us. We are dissatisfied not with our immediate ruler, not with our spiritual leader or our governmental leader or our boss or our family leader. We are dissatisfied with God's rule over us. Dale Davis helpfully explains this in his commentary. He, He points back to 1 Samuel Israel had, he says, Israel had made a subtle shift in their thinking. They, have, they had looked for their security, not in God, but in the king. They thought that deliverance came through a fallen human being. And that's not much different than their ancestors. We'll see later on in 1 Samuel 12 that in Egypt, Israel was oppressed and they cried out to God and God sent Moses and Aaron. In Canaan, Israel was oppressed and they cried out to God and God sent a deliverer judge. And that happens all throughout the book of Judges as well. But when we get to 1 Samuel 12, which we'll see in a few weeks, Israel becomes oppressed by Nahash. But do you know who they cry out to for help? They don't cry out to God. They cry out to their king, Saul. That's exactly what they wanted. Do you see? They wanted someone that they could see and, and hear and touch 
so that they could have Him lead them. And that, that when they got into trouble, they could go to Him. Not some intangible being up in the sky. You see Israel's problem? It wasn't that they wanted a king. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It was that they trusted in the king instead of trusting in God. And this should remind us of the idolatry that we saw in chapter 4. Do you remember when they were losing in battle to the Philistines? What did they turn to when they had lost just a, a huge number of troops? They turned back to the Ark of the Covenant, didn't they? Let's go get the Ark and bring it out to battle. That surely will be, as I called it, the lucky charm that we need in order to win. And here, they're not much different. In 1 Samuel 12, they're going to cry out in the same way and say, when we are in trouble, when we are afraid, we will trust in You, O earthly King. And you know, sometimes we are not much different. And that's why I say we're like Israel and that we are dissatisfied with God's rule over us at times. We look at our problems and we try to correct them using our own methods or through tried and true means that have been used by others. We, we try to, to move to a different system, a different leader, earthly. But the answer is not in the means. It's not in the earthly leader. The answer for our problems is in the source. We have put our confidence in something that God never intended us to. Our confidence always was to be in Him, not through the earthly leader, not in the the means itself. So we're dissatisfied with God's rule over us. second way in which we're like Israel in this passage is that we ask with wrong motives. We ask with wrong motives. How much does our desire to be like unbelievers drive the way that we live? How much is our worship driven by the world? You know, if we could just change our worship a little, then maybe we would be more attractive. How much of our worship is about entertainment and amusement rather than contemplative worship based on propositional truth? How much have we slipped from the standards laid out in Scripture because our society has been successful in squeezing us into its mold? You see, we pursue some of the good things in life even with wrong motives so that we can consume them upon our lust. That's what James says. And you know, God sees right through that, doesn't He? And sometimes, amazingly, God even gives us, when we are rebellious, He even gives us what we ask for. That's what He did here to Israel. No, Samuel, but we will have a king over us. And what did God do? Samuel, grant their request. Give them a king. See, sometimes God gives us exactly what we ask for, and other times He withholds what we ask for. That's not necessarily a way to determine if God is pleased with us, whether He gives us what we ask for or not. Sometimes we look at what God is doing as an answer to prayer when really it's a measure of God's judgment on us. God, I want to move on. Let's just take a really extreme example. I want to move on into this thing that is clearly a violation of Your will. I want to do this sin. So will You give it to me? And and do you know sometimes God says yes. Taste the consequences, the fruit of Your desires. 
that's not necessarily a testament to God's approval of it, is it? Just because He allows you to go into it? No. In fact, many times when God gives us what we ask for, it's a measure of God's judgment. That's what He did in Romans 1. They wanted to consume their own lusts. They, they wanted to pervert God's Word and God's law. And so they went off into strange and, and, and crazy passions. And God allowed them to experience all of the consequences that come along with that desire. Sometimes God's judgment on us is answering our requests. Israel got what they wanted. They wanted a king. For the next 500 years, they would have a king. In fact, every single thing that Samuel predicted would happen regarding those kings would come true eventually. Not necessarily in every single king, but he would take their sons. He would take their daughters. He would take their land. He would take the best of their animals and their children. He would require a tax on them. They experienced all of those over the course of the next 500 years. Some of those kings required every single one. Sometimes God pours out His judgment by giving us exactly what we ask for. Sometimes, however, God mercifully withholds what we ask for. And this is a measure of God's grace that He sometimes says no. No. Imagine what would happen if you got everything that you asked God for. Aren't you thankful that God does withhold from you what you ask for at times? Think back to some of your selfish or ill-informed prayers and how God withheld those things from you. And then be thankful that God is seeing a bigger picture than you. God has a better and a bigger plan for you. And God ultimately has your sanctification in mind. In what ways are we like Israel? We are dissatisfied with God's rule. We ask with wrong motives. And then finally, we are like Israel in that we need a changed heart. We need a changed heart. Maybe the request for a king wasn't so bad. Maybe it was simply the kind of king that they received. Right? Saul was wicked. David was good. But David was far from perfect. Solomon was crafty. Many of the kings to follow were corrupt. So maybe the problem was not in the king, but in the quality of the king. What if there were a perfect king? And that would happen, wouldn't it? One of David's sons would come along 2,000 years later and he would come to establish his kingdom. He was the perfect king and merciful and selfless and God-honoring to the max. And yet, how did Israel respond to that perfect king? They killed him. You see, what Israel needed was not simply a king. They did need that. They did need a perfect king. What they really needed was in addition to that, they needed a changed heart. A heart that would accept God's loving rule. That's what the parable of the vineyard is all about. The landowner sends out his servant and wants to take stock of how they're doing on his land. And they kill some and they beat others. And he says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll treat him well. And when he sends his son, they kill him. See, what Israel needed was not simply a king. They needed a changed heart that could accept God's loving rule. 
And until their hearts are changed, until our hearts are changed, we will reject God's rule in our lives. Whether that come in the form of human government or church government or family leadership or at a job, we will reject our authority. doesn't matter how it comes. doesn't matter what quality. From, from imperfect to perfect. You want to put your boss or your father or your husband on a scale of imperfect to perfect? doesn't matter where it is. If you reject his authority, if you reject his or her authority, then you reject God. The God who placed that person over you. And so what we ultimately need is not freedom without spiritual accountability. We need that spiritual accountability. We need that, that structure. We need that authority. But we, and what we also need is a changed heart. So let's pray for God's help as we seek to apply this to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the examples that You have put in the Old Testament for our learning, for our understanding to, to really um, make vivid what was and what often is unclear for us. Lord, we, we don't see our hearts very clearly. And we justify many of our actions and and call it um, a concern for truth or a concern for righteousness and you know our our leader is not being righteous and so we want to we want to usurp their authority and lord ultimately what it is is it's a heart that that is opposed to you it doesn't matter the the kind of leader that you put over us lord you have established them for your good they are servants of yours in the sense that they do what you uh, have appointed them for, for them to do. And so it doesn't matter how corrupt one of our leaders are. If they're not calling us to, to disobey you, then they are to be submitted to. And so we pray for your grace. We need hearts that are receptive to your leading, to the Holy Spirit's promptings, to the power of your Word. Lord, may we be Word-centered people. May we be led by Your book. May our hearts sing when we hear of Your law. May our hearts sing when we're convicted about Your truth. Because we love Your law. We want to obey it. Certainly, we must be, we must be uh, willing to confess our sins and to forsake it. But Lord, we love Your law because it shows our impurities and it helps us to be more like our Savior. And that's what we long for. Because there will be a day when we are completely like Him. And we don't want to wait until that time to be, to be changed fully. We want to have that process start now. We know that that's true and that's guaranteed in the life of every believer. So help us to, to be complicit with Your Spirit and with His leading as we respond to Your, to your Word even this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.